The Enneacast is sponsored in part by Your Enneagram Coach. Did you know you can learn how to walk people through the Enneagram and see their lives transform? All from the comfort of your own home while also making an excellent income. Find out how by going to yourenneagramcoach.com slash BEC. There you can become a certified coach and help others discover just who it is God made them to be. Again, that's yourenneagramcoach.com slash BEC. So I see that playing out in my teaching and my writing. I'm, I'm always kind of looking for the deeper meaning of things. I'm always looking for sort of this aha that so few people have ever discovered or thought about or, or articulated in a certain way. And so I do see that craving for uniqueness come out. This is a show about self-discovery. About understanding ourselves. About looking into the mirror to see the good. The bad. And the unknown of who we are. This is about how we relate to God and everyone else from Love Thy Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Enneacast. Hey, welcome to the Enneacast. I am Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram. This season, we're exploring story, and now we're going to be wrapping up the heart triad with the story of type four, commonly known as... The Originalist. So all of our type episodes will be expounding on the content found in our workbook, Mapping Your Enneagram Story. So if you haven't yet listened to episode one from this season, it walks you through this workbook and how to use it. So I encourage you to do that first. Right. And to get a copy of the Mapping Your Enneagram Story workbook, go to mappingyourstory.com. You can listen to the season without it, but it's really going to make the content come alive and personalized for you in a way that just listening cannot. So I encourage you to pick that up at mappingyourstory.com. Okay, before we dive in, let's do a quick refresher. Type four, when they're healthy, they are caring, they're expressive, they have a heightened sense of beauty, they're intense, they're sensitive, and they are emotionally intuitive. And when they're unhealthy, they tend to have a need to feel special. They're never quite satisfied. They can become dramatic and moody. They can be melancholic. They tend to overreact. They feel misunderstood. And they can be a little snobbish. Yes, we can. Quite snobbish <laughs> at times. Uh, so this season, we're looking at how the Enneagram plus life story equals clarity. You know, we really need both components, both our Enneagram as well as our life story to get a full picture. So let's explore the story for type four. So Sam, where does the story start? So it starts in childhood. You know, fours live with the childhood theme of loss and rejection. Okay, so Jesse, since you're a four, I was hoping that maybe you could walk us through some of this childhood theme. Yeah, you got to imagine like loss is sort of like the container. And in this container is sort of a sense of alienation, a sense of being overlooked, of being misunderstood, of being a rebel, mm -hmm. of being an outcast. But all of that is, you know, really at its heart, all of that is relational loss. So this theme of loss and rejection just permeates, you know, a lot of the wounds of the, the childhood four. If you have a copy of Mapping Your Enneagram Story, take some time to look through your life turns and take note if you see this theme of loss or rejection appear in any of the turns that you mapped out. 
So growing up with this theme leads the child for to believe an unconscious message. And that message is it's not okay to be too much or too forgettable. Yeah, a lot of times as, you know, as kids, fours are told like, you know, you're being a little dramatic. Uh, you're being a little emotional. A little uh, too sensitive. Yeah, you're a little too sensitive. Hey, can you pull it back? And then at the same time, the child four really learned if I blend into the crowd, I'm going to be forgotten. I'm, I'm overlooked. People don't pay attention to me. And so there's a real sense of if I diminish myself too much, if I like become too typical, that causes problems. And if I become like too expressive, that causes problems. And so what ends up happening is that kid fours just feel like they're slamming back and forth between those two walls all the time. Man, that um, can be challenging. So that kind of leads the four longing. You know, I think that there's a theme of longing in childhood that we see a lot. And that leads the four to start longing um, for a good thing, which is to be oneself. And, you know, we all want to to have a self. We all want to stand out. Obviously, that's universal. But for the four, to your point, I think it's important that they have a sense of self and to be oneself because they have been told, oh, you're too much. You don't fit here, you know. And so that becomes something they really long for. Yeah. Fours oftentimes grow up with a sense that they have an incomplete identity, that the rest of the world sort of got finished being built and the four didn't quite finish all the way being built. And so there's a real longing to be oneself, Mm -hmm. to be a whole person, and also to be uniquely who I am. And it's okay that I am who I am. And so there's a real good desire just to be yourself. So all this stuff happens in childhood. And really what's happening is that it creates a backstory which sets a stage for the nurturing of our false self. And this really starts when the four begins to settle. Uh, We're all prone to settle for substitutes. And for the four, they want to be themselves, but they settle for being unique. And here's why. You know, being unique promises them two things. It promises, I'm going to give you an identity and I'm going to provide you with self-protection. So again, like I said a minute ago, fours really grew up with a sense of my identity is incomplete. Well, if I'm unique then I have an identity and I won't be overlooked and I won't be forgotten and I'm a whole self. Uh, At least it feels that way. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the other thing is self-protection. If I'm unique enough, I can get you to pay attention to me, but I also can stand just outside the group enough to where uh, you won't reject me. In other words, if I blend in, there may come a time where you kick me out of the group, you vote me off the island. But if I'm unique enough then I've got your attention, but I'm also safely standing apart from you so that you can't hurt me. You have just enough walls up to remain safe and free from the possibility of vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. And because the four begins to believe that being unique is going to give them what they want, being unique ends up becoming an idol. And the four will easily devote themselves to being unique at all costs and even be willing to go to great lengths in order to gain it. And in fact, they begin to sacrifice three good things in order to please this idol of being unique. So what are those three things? First, they sacrifice future happiness because we get real attached to a bunch of pain in our life and we're discontent and we long for a better future. But of course, the future eventually becomes the present. So we sacrifice any sense of happiness that's going to eventually come our way. 
Uh, Second, we sacrifice feeling accepted and understood by others because if I feel that I have to be unique, then it also means I can't allow you to really understand me. If you understand me, then I'm not really unique. And I can't really be accepted because if I'm accepted, then I'm not standing apart from the crowd and I have to stand apart from the crowd to be unique. And third, they sacrifice emotional equanimity and calm. A lot of times in our pursuit of being unique, we just freak out. Like we just, we are classic overreactors. Our reactions are way too big, you know, for a variety of situations. Of course, there's, there's time for, like there's a healthy time for, you know. uh, That's not always going to be a bad thing. It's not always a bad thing, but we do frequently have a tendency to overreact emotionally. So the idol of being unique, like it is not messing around. Like it is an idol that really demands a lot of key sacrifices from us that are that are hurting us. Yeah, it takes a lot from the life of the four. So in this pursuit of being unique and this cycle of sacrifice, the four creates perfect conditions to grow their deadly sin. And for the four, their deadly sin is envy. So in my understanding, envy is longing for what others have that I don't somehow possess within my own self. And so yeah. it's it's an inward posture of looking inward and seeing lack and it's an outward posture of seeing you know kind of excess and and i, I want whatever it is that i don't have and whatever i do have i don't want is yeah, kind yeah of the double-edged right, right, sword of yeah. envy i've heard it said this way we are sad about other people's happiness yeah some of the ways that the four can kind of grow this envy in pursuit of being unique so they have this fear of the ordinary you know there's a sense of anonymity that can come with the ordinary and fours hate the idea of being anonymous they want to stand out they want to be unique remember so fear of the ordinary is something that is really driving the four elitism so you know jesse you were saying that fours can kind of stand outside the crowd well that can kind of create you know a headspace of i'm better than everybody else yeah we're the cool police yeah stand out and i stand above not only do i stand on the outside, but I stand kind of two steps ahead and above everybody else. So uh, they can be self-absorbed, you know, being sad at other people's happiness. I think that's a very kind of selfish way to live. Yeah, all we the time. fixate on we fixate on our own feelings and wants and longings. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then longing for something more. So never being satisfied with what I have. So again, if you have mapping your enneagram story, take a look at your life map. You know, is there anywhere that you can see envy showing up? And if you're like, well, I'm not envious, I don't struggle with envy, you may need to do some more work because often our envy is growing unnoticed by us. And that's because sin is adaptable and it learns how to defend itself. And the four's defense of their sin is through their psychological defense mechanism known as introjection. And this defense, it carries the suffering and loss of the past rather than grieving it and letting it go and moving forward in life. So what happens is we attach ourselves to this melancholic pain from our past, and it sort of just sits on us like a low-grade fever. And we use that past pain as a way of saying, no one understands me and no one understands what I've been through and I'm different. And the reason why this is called a deadly sin and why it is so deadly is because it's so sneaky and it's hard to to recognize and hard to notice. And it's, it's dangerous. And so for the four, you know, this unconscious kind of mantra that they can start living with is my pain justifies my envy. Yeah. I was, I was talking with a a fellow four yesterday about this and they were saying, they were like, I would never put it in those words. My pain justifies my envy. But he said, that's exactly what my thoughts are, Hmm. that, that the things I've suffered in life and the things that I, that I feel have been withheld from me justifies why I long so intensely and why sometimes I struggle to be happy about other people's success and happiness in life. So where does all of this leave the four? It leaves them feeling envious. It leaves them feeling ashamed and it leaves them overreactive. 
So what started as a good desire to be oneself has now become terribly marred. And in, as we look at the story of our life, there's a moment in which we encounter Jesus. And this is good news for us because it's a sign that God doesn't leave us in our despair, but that he has a real desire to love us into wholeness. And he does that by bringing us Jesus. In Jesus, we see the true originalist. I think of examples when he um, refers to the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Like he's drawing us back into the beauty of creation. He's drawing us back to the simplicity of life. Um, he's drawing our attention kind of upward and outward, um, not in a way of longing, but in a way of, you know, kind of being satisfied and content in the moment. I think anytime he's, you know, healing people, he's sensitive to the wounds of others. And the other thing, too, that, that's sort of interesting when you look at the way that he heals people is that Jesus often doesn't heal people the same way each time, which mm-hmm. is a very four thing. Yeah. Like, I've done that. I've tried that. I've expressed it in that way. I'm going to express it in a new way. But unlike the four, where oftentimes we do it for self-indulgent reasons as like an identity builder, I think that Jesus does it truly for the sake of the people that he's serving. So his creativity of healing is customized for the audience that that he's doing the healing with. So in order for us to truly trust any guide that's going to come to us and show us a new way of life, they have to offer us two things. The first thing is that they have to empathize with us. The second thing is that they have to show us their authority. In other words, why should I listen to you? And the good news for fours is this, is that Jesus empathizes with your wounds. Jesus was rejected by his community and he was constantly misunderstood. Like that's classic four stuff. And what's beautiful about that is this, is that the four mantra of you don't understand me, Jesus says, you don't get to say that to me. Hmm. I do understand you. He was the most misunderstood person yes. that's ever lived. Yes. So in Jesus, the four find somebody that truly understands them and that truly understands what they've gone through in life and the pain that they've experienced. So that's how he shows us empathy. How does he also show us his authority? Yeah. He establishes authority through affirming our true self. In the life of the four, we see these big expressive emotions. And in John 11, we see that Jesus wept. You know, he was moved to the point of tears over the loss of his friend Lazarus. And so we see him affirming the emotionality of the four. But he doesn't just leave us there. He also confronts our false self. He doesn't choose special people for his mission. He chooses fishermen. He chooses tax collectors. He, you know, he doesn't choose the the star players of his day. He, he chooses very ordinary people. Which is beautiful, right? Because it's his way of saying, you don't have to be wildly unique for me to pay attention to you. You are as unique as the person next to you. And that I'm going to pay attention to you and notice you and you have a place in my kingdom, even without all the bells and whistles uh, that you feel that you've got to create. So the question is like, how did Jesus do this? How did Jesus uphold creativity and empathy and emotional connection. Like, how is he doing all of this without succumbing to all, you know, the melancholy and succumbing to the envy and succumbing to making these sacrifices to an idol? And the way that he does it is that he believed the father who told him, I know you and I love you exactly for who you are. Jesus knows his identity. He knows his value. And Jesus does not feel compelled in any way that he needs to go and craft some identity because he already knows whose he is. And the amazing thing is this, is that Jesus is now turning to you and to you, he says, I know you and I love you exactly for who you are. In John 1, we see this. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. 
Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. So even before Nathaniel came to know Jesus, Jesus already knew Nathaniel. Like Jesus mm-hmm. is always present, always aware, and always uh, knows who we are. And through his gospel, the Holy Spirit is able to work into the four what they originally wanted, which is to be themselves. And one of the ways he does this is often through the virtue of equanimity or balance. Yeah. And this idea of equanimity and balance is this idea of like emotions matter, but they're not they're not enough to really believe that I can perceive reality exclusively through my emotions. Yeah, they aren't the driver's seat in the in the car of our of our life. They don't get yeah. to ride in the driver's seat. Yeah, they, they got to share other spaces. Yeah. So it's like I need counsel from friends. I need scriptural wisdom. I need prayer. I need patience. I need a good night's sleep. I need a good diet. You know, it's like all these things have to be factored into the way that I perceive reality. And the biggest thing is I don't overreact. I feel the impulse to react big. And instead, I choose to pull back and give myself some time and patience to think through it. So the amazing thing is this, is that as we step into these virtues, it's not just the virtue that we get to enjoy, but there's always a side effect of that virtue. And the fruit that comes from this this virtue of equanimity is gratitude. The four finally gets the joy of being grateful for the good things in their life. When good things happen, they accept them wholeheartedly and they celebrate them and they're thankful for it. Mm-hmm. And that's a real antidote to, to the longing ache that goes on inside of fours. Whenever I was teaching a workshop, I played the song, What a Wonderful World, for the example of a healthy four. And one of the fours in the room asked, like, are fours optimists? And I was like, I don't know that fours would ever label themselves as optimists, but I do know that fours can have gratitude. And I think that there is a difference there. And so I think that that's really important. And so, again, refer to mapping your Enneagram story here and then ask yourself if you see gratitude showing up through any of your life turns. It's okay if you don't. You might not be thinking in those terms. And and virtues, they take time to grow. So ask the Holy Spirit to grow gratitude in you. And if you do see gratitude show up, well, then praise the Lord. You're on the right track. And here's the thing. As the four continues to walk with God and be transformed, instead of reflecting an envious and overreactive spirit, their true self ever increasingly will reflect God's creativity and God's depth. And the world desperately needs to see those things. And so fours, the healthier you become and the more you live out of your true self, the more that your mere presence tells the world about who God is. And this story isn't just an invitation for fours. There is an invitation for all of us here, and that is to let go of the past and to be renewed by your experiences. Healthy fours do both. Healthy individuals do both. Well, that is the Enneagram story for type four. When we come back, we're going to be talking with pastor and author Scott Sauls. Stay with us. The Enneacast is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. Love Thy Neighborhood offers social justice internships supported by Christian community for young adults like Michael Watanabe from Virginia. LTN taught me how to balance life with living out the gospel in practical ways. The experience with LTN gave me the tools and the habits that I use to love God and love people well, even while working a busy corporate job now. Ready to see how Love Thy Neighborhood could impact your life? Learn more and apply at lovethyneighborhood.org. Hey 
Hey, welcome back. I'm Jesse Eubanks. I'm Sam Stevenson. Our guest today is Scott Saul. Scott is the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Previously, Scott was a lead and preaching pastor for Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, where he worked alongside Dr. Timothy Keller. Scott is the author of four books, including Jesus Outside the Lines, A Way Forward for Those Who Are Tired of Taking Sides, and Irresistible Faith, Becoming the Kind of Christian the World Can't Resist. Scott is also a husband and father, and he is a four on the Enneagram. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hey, thanks. Appreciate you having me, Jesse. Yeah, we're glad to have you. I guess, you know, one of my first questions is just, what has been your exposure to the Enneagram? Like, how did you first come across it? Does it play a role in the ministry work that you do now? Uh, somewhat. Yeah. I mean, we do, you know, sort of personality assessments on our staff and team building and, uh, Enneagram has been a point of conversation in my own home. Uh, my oldest daughter is especially fascinated by it. Uh, my wife as well. And we've got a, a friend here locally, uh, Ian Cron, who, co-wrote a very popular book uh, around uh, the Enneagram and I've been on Ian's podcast and he actually on that podcast in that interview challenged my own assumptions about what my number was and persuaded me that that I was actually a different number than I thought walking into the room and did some exploration and talking with my wife and others who know me well and turns out he was probably right. Yeah, that that answers that question. Yeah, because I do remember you were on uh, Typology and they had you on as a three. And then in our dialogue, you know, I heard that you were four. And so that that makes sense. That's right. Clearly, I'm so misunderstood by Ian. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, what attributes of the four then have you kind of evolved into or what stuck out to you once you kind of did some reassessing? Well, I mean, when I first read it, I, I was actually a lot more attracted to the four than I was to the three because I resonate with sort of the the poetic, artistic, sort of tortured artists. I've always identified with, you know, people who create incredible beauty and yet have, you know, such darkness that they deal with uh, personally. Uh, just the whole tortured artist profile, I've always been drawn to that person and that kind of literature and those kinds of songwriters and, and so on. But I never thought of myself as being that until Ian essentially pointed out, according to him, I didn't bring three energy into the room. I brought four energy, uh, much more introspective and you know poetic in terms of the way that I like to engage a conversation and a lot less about, you know, kind of working the room. And I think what what attracts me most to the four is both the the artistic, aesthetic sort of beauty aspect of it that that fours are drawn to to beauty and also, experience tragedy uh, maybe more deeply than others when beauty is threatened. And I'm also, I guess, attracted to the when there's an underdog situation, folks who maybe are more oriented toward the fore are prone to speak up, step in, empathize, uh, feel deeply with the, the, you know, the, the underdog and those who aren't getting a fair shake. I'd say those are probably the things that that appeal to me and resonate with me the most. Let me let me switch gears just a little bit. So if it's okay, I want to ask you about childhood wounds. Many fours describe a theme of loss, deprivation, being overlooked in their childhood. Looking back, you know, does that feel true for you? And if so, in, in what way? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a hard one. I guess you know what you what you could say is I've, I had a very 
busy, upwardly mobile, career-oriented father and uh, a mother who was kind of always present. So I, I, I don't really, I don't have the credentials to kind of psychoanalyze what, what made me what I am or what makes a person what they are. But I do remember at that age, especially in the teenage years, feeling invisible, uh, even though probably my peers would have said the opposite. I was a two-sport athlete throughout high school and, um, you know, and yet I, I never wanted to go to parties because I felt really awkward and uncomfortable in my own skin, uh, painfully so, and just had this feeling all the time that nobody really wanted to talk to me. I, I wouldn't be that interesting, you know, cool enough or, or desirable enough for anybody to show interest in me. And so a lot of that, I think, was just stuff that, that I po- imposed on my own perception of, of myself, which wasn't necessarily consistent with what what others may have thought. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and so I, I always felt like my brother, who was more gregarious and talkative and desiring connection, uh, was probably the more favored child. I don't necessarily think that was true, uh, but, I, but I felt that way because I, I tended to be more reserved. I, I probably spent a lot more time alone in my room than my brother did. But uh, I don't know. I, I tend to think that my wiring was probably just as much something I was born with than something that was imposed on me through childhood wounds. Yeah, it's always hard to know the difference, you know, how much is nature, how much is nurture, you know. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's always that's always difficult. But but I did feel kind of like a misfit. You know, I felt more comfortable in my own company than I did in the company of others. Yeah. Yeah, I resonate with that. Does the desire to to be seen for who you are resonate with you? Like when you hear that message of I really want to be seen and known for who I am and understood and loved. Does that does that resonate very deeply with you? I don't know if I want that more or if I want to be heard. Sometimes, I don't know, being seen and being heard can be the same thing, I guess. Yeah, say say more about that. Say more about the desire to be heard. Like what happens for you in that desire to be heard? I, I think as a, I think part of it is just being a pastor and a writer. One of the things that I love is when fresh kind of aha insights come. And, and I, I think the wiring of, of a four lends itself to that because you're always, you, you want to be the unique one, right? You want to be the, you want to be the one who's different than everybody. Yeah, we do. Um, <laughs> and you simultaneously feel sorry for yourself for, for, for being the different one, right? <laughs> but, but, mm-hmm. but you also want to be known as somebody with a very unique take on things. And, and so I see that playing out in my teaching and my writing. I'm, I'm always kind of looking for the deeper meaning of things. I'm always looking for sort of this aha that so few people have ever discovered or thought about or, or articulated in a certain way. And so I do see that craving for uniqueness come out, especially, especially in my work. I, I think the, the pressure to be unique or the, the drive to be unique is less of a drive in trusted friendships and in trusted family relationships for me for whatever reason. Well, let me ask this. So one of the things that we're exploring this season is the idea that so often the the deadly sin in each of our lives really 
works hard to hide itself from us so that we're not even aware of its presence. And so for the four, our deadly sin is envy. Are there ways in which you've seen this deadly sin hide itself from you? NPR the other day defined envy as wanting what other people have and resenting them for having it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much resentment plays in, but certainly wanting what other people have uh, and just having this idea of somebody else having a better life or a better situation or a better whatever. um, That's, that's always been kind of an ever present thing. And, you know, there's a, there's another sort of manifestation of envy. I think it's a German term that's, that's not translatable into English, but it's schadenfreude. You guys ever heard that phrase? No. What is it? It sounds familiar. It's sort of the flip side of envy. It's, it's, you know, taking secret delight in somebody else's misfortune. It's that side of envy where we feel less alone in the world, I guess, uh, when another person struggles. You know, envy would mourn over others who are rejoicing and and schadenfreude would rejoice over others who are mourning. Uh, And I think over the years, both of those have, you know, been issues in a more superficial way, like for instance, I'm a North Carolina basketball fan. You know, whoever I'm cheering for, if if North Carolina is not playing, is whoever's playing against Duke. Yes. Uh, and, <laughs> and so, you know, that, that's kind of a superficial way of saying, you know, I love to see, you know, sort of the rival team crash and burn. But it can get more personal when you're talking about maybe somebody who's a colleague at work and they get demoted or they're on a performance plan or they're being disciplined or they don't make their sale or they lose an account if you're in sales to secretly feel good about that because of the way that it sort of boosts your ego by comparison. Right. I, I think yeah. that can be a, a specifically a thorn for kind of the brooding four type of not only sitting in our own, you know, self chosen misery, but also, desiring others to join us in that misery Um, and and therefore kind of secretly being happy when we see somebody else experience loss. It's kind of sick, but, you know, I I think it's in every human heart on some level, but I think fours might be especially susceptible to that. Uh, Yeah. I was watching uh, The Office last night and there's the episode where Dwight gets up and he gives this speech in front of a room full of like a thousand people and Michael Scott can't take it and oh, he gets up yes, and he leaves um, yeah. and he goes to the bar to drink because <laughs> mm-hmm. he just can't stomach that Dwight is getting all of this affirmation and attention that he feels is owed to him mm-hmm. and I was like oh yeah. that yeah. that's that a great example yeah <laughs> sure. yeah yeah um well let me ask this so how has the message that God sees you and loves you for who you are how does that influence uh, your life and, you know, what, what is the outcome of that in believing that message? It's a struggle for anyone to fully grasp or even mostly grasp that truth. So for a four in particular, you know, when we build so much of our identity on being unique and on being loners and on being different and on being the exception, you know, we can sometimes feel like the outsiders looking in on on the grace of God and the enjoyment of, of the riches of Christ. So I think it's a constant formation activity to, to just continue to subject ourselves to those truths and, and hope that they sink in, you know, as the Holy Spirit does his work. 
but it's it's an ongoing struggle and I, I think in a sense it's meant to be right we're we're meant to continue to struggle right knock and it shall be open to you seek and you will find you know that that whole process of not only being formed into the likeness of Christ, but being formed into the kinds of people who believe that his love is really what he says it is toward us uniquely, uh, not just in general to the whole world, but uniquely toward us. You know, it's it's hard to grasp, but, but it's something to continue to, to keep pursuing uh, for a lifetime. Yeah, I think that's really good. Um, we talk about in our show that um, fours are in the heart triad and they struggle with shame and the antidote to shame is God's delight. So how do you know that God is delighting in you? Like what part of your life do you really feel God's delight? If I can pause and remove all the distractions and shut off the screens and put out of my mind the the stresses of the day and just just look at how big everything is and how small we are in comparison and how small I am in comparison. My, my mind and my heart tend to go to the eighth Psalm where David asks the question, you know, who am I? You know, he's, there's this sort of invisible feeling and where the Holy Spirit takes him is a little bit less than God crowned with glory and honor, the crown of God's creation, you know? And I think a look at nature and the beauty of how God has created things, I think, which which plays into the, the aesthetic impulse of a four when I get out in creation and remember both how small uh, we are uh, relative to everything and also how targeted we are, uniquely so, with respect to the love of God. You know, no face being the same as any other face, no fingerprint being the same as any other fingerprint, and just how uniquely God has fashioned each one of us and, you know, to the point of knowing the number of hairs that are on our heads, you know, those truths have over time become believable to me when I get in a certain environment and I'm able to contemplate kind of the grandeur of things and the grandeur of God. And yet he, he thinks of us and, you know, ordained every single one of our days before one of a single one of them came to be, you know, you know, all those wonderful things the scriptures say. So I think over time, by the grace of God, I've just started to believe more and more what the scriptures say. Yeah, we're not lost in the crowd. You know, we're a part of we're a part of the body, and yet at the same time, God sees us specifically. His love is not just general and generic, but it's specific for us. That's right. Yeah. Well, we fours are really good at going deep and heavy. <laughs> so I think uh, now we're going to practice laughing and enjoying ourselves a little bit. So when we come back, we're going to be playing Hot Seat with Scott Sauls. Stay with us. In today's episode of the Enneacast, we're exploring the story of type number four. One of the traits of the originalist is that we can get lost in fantasy, heading into the fantasy of our minds and our hearts instead of living in the real world. If you'd like to explore this topic more, check out our other podcast, the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. And specifically, check out episode number 21, where the gospel meets pornography. Halfway between Princeton and that church was an adult bookstore. Porn use and sexual acting out are higher in the evangelical community. You're better off just not watching it. I know. I had aspirations to ministry. Called the elders together. It would have been suicide. And said, okay, guys, here's the situation. God absolutely has the power to change our lives immediately. He doesn't typically do that. Healing happens when we get together. 
You can listen to the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast by listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. Or by heading over to lovethatneighborhood.org slash LTN podcast. Again, lovethatneighborhood.org slash LTN podcast. Welcome back to the IndiaCast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. And right now, we're going to play Hot Seat. Okay, our game today is called Hot Seat. It's based off a real game by the company Player 10. So here's how it works. Sam is going to read a question off a card, and then Scott, you are going to write down your answer to that question. At the same time, I'm going to write down what I think your answer is. I'll reveal my answer first, and then you'll reveal your actual answer. If they match or they're relatively close, uh, then I get a point. And if they don't, then you get a point. And we will play to five rounds. Are you ready? Yes. Wait. Yes. <laughs> All I got to do is answer questions, right? Yep. That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. I love that confidence that that was good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sam. Okay. Question one. What animal would I choose if I could transform into one for a day? And this is what Scott would transform into? Yes. Right? What okay. animal would Scott choose to transform into? Okay. And Jesse, you have to draw the animal. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is a bad. That's bad. Okay. Okay, I have my answer. Scott, do you have your answer? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to say bird. Close, I said an eagle. Oh, yeah, no, that works. That works, yeah. yeah we'll give, One so, point. Yeah. Uh, why an eagle? The thought of flying and being able to be that free and to look at everything from 10,000 feet, it's a pretty amazing thought. Yeah, that's actually very similar to my thinking. So my hope is that we have a four-wing three mind meld going on. There you go. I, my thought was giraffe. Giraffe? <laughs> yeah, I don't know no, why. That is not how a four thinks. I know. Oh, you're thinking unique. Okay, okay, next, Sam. So the next question, who is my celebrity doppelganger? Oh, who's your celebrity doppelganger? Okay, um, hold on. Okay, I've got mine. Ready? Mm-hmm. Chris Hemsworth, <laughs> right? Uh, no, I, I said Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. can see Steve Jobs. Yeah. Uh, okay. okay, I've only got one so far. I'm not doing so hot. Okay, Our next mind question. Mind melt is falling apart. Yeah, sorry. Um, which historical event would I have loved to be a part of? Hmm. Um. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I can see what I, you wrote. <laughs> I said. I said. The resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> Scott, is that right? I would have loved to have been part of that, but I uh, I said King's I Have a Dream speech. Oh, mm. yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, also good. Not okay. as holy as mine, yeah. but also very good. <laughs> um, next to last question, who would I choose if I could spend 15 minutes with any living person? Uh, Cur- anybody currently living? Yes. Hmm. So favorite celebrity, favorite author, Hmm. favorite resurrected Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hold on. Okay. I said a friend that you don't get to see very often. Just a a friend in general? 
that that's what I said. I couldn't figure. I couldn't figure out like. Yeah, sort of. My first guess was your wife, but then my second guess was just like a friend that you just don't have access to or get to see very often. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, I said LeBron James. Is he your friend? <laughs> oh, it has to be a friend? No, 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 no. no, no. no. Okay. I was just trying oh, to figure out a way to win. Uh, yeah. I, I wish he were my friend, but I, I know who he is, but he does not know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, I got... I got one point. Maybe you guys will get this one right together. Last question. Which is your favorite Enneagram number? Is it, can we say our own number? No, you have to guess what his is. Yeah, yeah. But uh, like, oh, yeah, four, you four? can say four. Okay. Okay. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to guess. You ready, Scott? Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess nine. Nailed it. Yeah. Why'd you say Nine. Well, I have a daughter and a very close friend and colleague who are nines. And that's not to say they're my favorite people in the world. They're among my favorite people in the world. But what I love about their personality is just how kind uh, they are. They just default to kindness. Yeah, yeah. Sam's a nine, and I appreciate Sam's company quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Back at you, Jesse. Yeah. (laughs) Well, all right. So Scott won that one, not me. So congratulations, Scott. Okay, I'll take it. I mean, it sounds like the deck was stacked in my favor, though. (laughs) Uh, It was. The odds were not in my favor at all. All right, and now it's time for listener questions. This first question comes from Vicki Lynn, E-D-U-T-A-U-D. What are the best questions to ask so that my four friends feel seen, heard, and special? How are you feeling right now? Yeah, I think that's a good one. I think that anytime that, yeah, questions are centered around how are you feeling, I think that's that's really good. I, th- I think anytime that a four starts to say something and the other person says, tell me more, I think is always good because it makes the four feel like, oh, you're really trying to understand me, which I appreciate. Yeah. Would there be any need for a question like, what are you passionate about? What have you been thinking on lately? Like what kind of Yeah, sure. Idea? Like, a, like what's, it, you yeah. know, what are you, what's made you excited lately? Or like, yeah. what are you, yeah. Or is that kind of, if the four is kind of in like a melancholic state, would that kind of not be the Yeah, if we're, if we're in a bad place, you don't want to ask us like what we're excited, what excited about. Because it's like, you're just, you're just trying to cheer <laughs> us up. We're onto your game. Yeah. Yeah. But I just think that like the fours in my life are very passionate people. So I'm curious to know like what they're kind of thinking on what topic or or idea or cause is something that's kind of like made their heart come alive. Yeah. Um, so something kind of like that. Yeah. Oh, but you could also, I mean, get specific. You could ask questions like, is there a movie or a book yeah. that you've really loved lately? You yeah. know, that can get us excited. Well, this next question comes from Ashley Sparks. She asks, how can less emotive types respond best to a four when they are in that push-pull emotional cycle? They want validation and affection, but they're also pushing them away. So what approach could we use that would help diffuse this? Yeah, we do that push-pull dance. Yeah. Scott, what do you think? Um, Maybe, again, just to ask a question, how are you experiencing this conversation? I think what a four craves in those moments is, you know, again, understanding, empathy, uh, et cetera. That may not always be what we need because we might just be being downright self-centered and narcissistic uh, and, and, right, and might right. actually might actually need you know the the love of confrontation of 
you know, ask me how I'm experiencing conversation, but then tell me how you're experiencing it as well. I, I think, I think, um, I think both can be helpful. Yeah. I think the big thing that I would encourage is affirm that for, you know, let them know that you're there, let them know that you love them, but be very careful not to get pulled into their game where they want people to chase them mm-hmm. because that's a real unhealthy dynamic. Yeah. So if there's a sort of a moodiness and they're like withdrawing and they're sitting in the corner or they're like, Every, they feel overlooked, even though you definitely invited them and you've affirmed them and it's just not enough. The reality is that they've got stuff that they're they're working through and, and don't chase them. But yeah. just with confidence, communicate, hey, I love you and I'm for you and I hope that you'll choose to believe me. And regardless of how you respond right now, I just want you to know that I'm, I'm your friend and I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. I've heard yeah. you say it like, don't play the game with them. Yeah, don't play the game. Yeah. It's, nobody wins. If you play the game, nobody wins on yeah. that one. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, last question comes from Ethan C. Neth. Is there a reason why I, as a seven, get mistyped as a four? Am I really a four? Um, maybe. <laughs> maybe you are. Yeah, we can't answer that one because we don't know you specifically. But I do think there is a commonality between sevens and fours. They both have, like, a zest for life. They both see beauty and, and big picture stuff. They're, you know, kind of have this... Um, they're really, you know, attracted to certain causes or they have a justice component because they've got that one arrow that they share in common. So I'm I'm not surprised that sevens and fours kind of get mistyped. However, they do kind of also have a lot of opposites. I would think that fours and sevens would, generally speaking, really irritate each other and also really admire each other kind of on the same token, right? Because a four is going to envy a seven because the seven is having so much fun and is the life of the party and everybody likes them. And so the four is going to be irritated but also at the same time wish that 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 they had more of of what the 7 has whereas maybe the 7 although I've never met a 7 that didn't love being a 7 and and that wasn't just super proud of being a 7 and so but I could maybe see like in a quieter moment a 7 longing to be known as a person of greater depth which which I think a lot of fours tend to be known that way uh, or wishing they were more, you know, poetic and contemplative and, you know, maybe, maybe some shame around feeling like they always have to be somewhere near the center of attention. I think the interesting thing, though, is they both have a really strong relationship to pain. Yes. You know, that's kind of the thing that sticks out to me is yes. that if, if you believe you're a seven, but you keep getting, as you're saying, mistyped as a four, my question, I would center a lot of our conversation around the the pain in your life because it's possible that the pain is is pretty profound to you and it's possible either maybe you are a core four but if you're not maybe you're in a season where you're grieving and actually that can be a really healthy sign for a seven when a seven grieves um you know that's a sign of growth and health well scott hey thanks so much for being with us we really do appreciate having you on here thanks appreciate you having me Thanks to our special guest today, Scott Sauls. You can learn more about Scott's work at scottsauls.com. That's Scott, S-A-U-L-S dot com. Make sure to pick up his latest book, Irresistible Faith, Becoming the Kind of Christian the World Can't Resist. You can listen to Scott's sermons by visiting Christ Presbyterian Church's website at christpres.org. As always, thank you to our friends at Crosspoint Ministry who trained us in the Enneagram. You can learn more about their work at crosspointministry.com. 
Our show is a production of Love Thy Neighborhood. Love Thy Neighborhood provides social action internships supported by Christian community for adults ages 18 to 30. Come serve with us for a summer or a year. Grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Today's episode was produced by myself, Sam Stevenson, and Rachel Zabo. Engineering and editing by Rachel Zabo. Music for today's episode comes from Murphy DX. I'm Sam Stevenson. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community. Mm-hmm.